Two months gathering, two months planting, two months late sowing, one month cutting flax, one month reaping barley, one month reaping and measuring grain, two months pruning, one month summer fruit. Signed, Abiyah. The Gezer Calendar, 10th century BCE. Welcome to A History of the Jewish People, Episode 6, The Builder, Part 1. Since Rosh Hashanah also starts tomorrow, Chag Sameach to all our Jewish listeners. In this episode, we'll return to the narrative after our brief vacation around the Levant in the broader Near East. Since we ended Episode 4 with the death of King David, we'll pick right up where we left off, with the last king of the United Monarchy, King Solomon. Like his father, Solomon is a widely known figure in mainstream Western culture today. Most of you probably know about the wise King Solomon, even if you're not always sure why he was wise. There are probably more extra-biblical tales about Solomon than there are about David, such as the court case of the smell of bread and the many myths around the phrase, this too shall pass. But King Solomon is not just a rich figure in the stories outside of the Tanakh. Unlike David, whose life takes up the greater part of the book of Samuel, Solomon only gets about 10 chapters in the Book of Kings. His birth is told in David's story, but otherwise the Tanakh simply skips over his early life and dives into his reign. So, let's see what it has to say. Solomon was not David's first son, nor was he Bathsheba's first. David supposedly had at least eight wives, among whom Bathsheba was a bit of a latecomer, appearing only after David became king. Solomon was her second son, as her first died in infancy as punishment for David's judicial murder of her previous husband, Uriah the Hittite. As was always the case in polygamous monarchies, too many potential successors led to rivalries even before the death of the king. Primogeniture was assumed to be the standard among sons of any given wife, though the children of a favored wife could be preferred over the sons of lesser wives or concubines. This uncertainty of inheritance could be both a problem and an advantage of empires ranging from Egypt to China to the Mughals. While an abundance of claims to the throne often would lead to infighting and civil war, it could also ensure that competent candidates would always end up ruling. Despite the youth and small size of Israel's fledgling kingdom, succession was as much an issue for King David as it was for Ramses the Great or Emperor Hongwu of Ming. According to the biblical narrative, before his death, David's eldest surviving son, Adoniah, began planning for his succession. He organized a sacrifice in his honor, but did not invite the four most important people at the court, Bathsheba, the priest Tzadok, the prophet Nathan, and King David himself. These omissions reveal a lot about the ancient Israelite court. The king, of course, represented one party, and his wives represented another, as did the priesthood, and a final category, the prophets, who acted throughout the Book of Kings as the representatives of the people, speaking out against the king when necessary. Nathan found out about this sacrifice and notified Bathsheba, who confronted the king and had him swear that Solomon would succeed him, after which they anointed Solomon as the next king of Israel. Despite the civil wars that occurred following Saul's death and during the reign of King David himself, none seems to have occurred following David's death. According to the account in chapter 2 of the Book of Kings, Adoniah ceded the throne to his half-brother Solomon, 
but asked for a wife as a sort of consolation prize. Solomon, angered by this, had Adoniah killed. Among excuses for murdering political opponents, asking for a wife seems rather flimsy. Solomon also dealt swiftly with Adoniah's supporters, exiling one and killing two after three years. Chapter 2 ends by simply saying, Thus, the kingdom was secured in Solomon's hands. You may have noticed that I've switched this episode from using the present tense to the past tense. We know David was a historical figure, and Saul likely existed as well, as may have some of the judges. But all of their stories are absolutely inundated with legends. The historical David did not, unfortunately, begin his impressive career by killing a Philistine giant named Goliath. On the other hand, Solomon's story is plausible, at least up to this point. Everything about the succession I just described lines up pretty well with coups throughout world history. Even if the dying David did not tell Solomon that he should be made king, it would have been perfectly natural for Solomon to have claimed that his father had made him the crown prince. Having said that, the first thing Solomon did after having secured his kingship is not in fact plausible. 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 1 says that Solomon sought a marriage alliance with the king of Egypt. Marriage alliances were common enough, but over 2,000 years, it had been Egyptian policy never to send an Egyptian princess to a foreign land. Egypt itself had received many, many, many foreign princesses to be the pharaoh's wives, but the pharaohs themselves were thought to be too noble to ever consider sending one of their own in exchange, let alone with a puny kingdom like Israel. Next comes the first of the Solomonic legends, the origin story of King Solomon's wisdom. When Solomon sacrificed at Gibeon in the territory of Benjamin, the Israelite god appeared to him and offered to grant him a boon. Solomon complained of being young and inexperienced, so he asked to be given the means to judge his people and to discern between good and bad. Pleased that Solomon did not ask for riches or longevity, the Israelite god granted the king not only the wisdom he requested, but also these earthly prizes, wealth and long life. Solomon's first court case with this newfound wisdom is the famous story of the two women and their child. Two prostitutes both gave birth to sons, but one died shortly after birth. Supposedly, the mother of the dead child then swapped the children and claimed that hers was the living one. To discern whose was the live child, Solomon took a sword and offered to give each woman a half of the baby. The baby's actual mother then pled with him to spare the baby, saying that the other woman was the true mother. The other woman, quite implausibly, agreed with Solomon's order, so Solomon knew that the former was the true mother, since she was concerned first for the child's well-being. It would be a nifty solution, of course, if one mother is a human being and the other was a baby-killing monster. Anyway, with a marriage supposedly secured and justice rendered, Solomon then turned to the governance of his kingdom. He created a bureaucracy consisting of three priests, two scribes, a recorder, an overseer of the governors, an overseer of the palace, and an overseer of forced labor. He also appointed 12 governors, some, but not all, corresponding to tribal territories. I've posted a map of the prefectures on the website, so you can see the administrative districts listed and the cities from which they were supposedly governed. Next up, then, was taxation in the military. True to his word, the Israelite god gave Solomon great riches. 
the Book of Kings uses the unit of a core, which apparently was a measure of volume based around the capacity of one egg. A core was the volume of 4,320 eggs, which would have weighed about 3,750 pounds, or 1,700 kilos. Solomon was said to have brought in 30 cores of semolina flour and 60 cores of ordinary flour every single day, which would have amounted to 330,000 pounds, or 150,000 kilos, daily. Flour is currently sold in the U.S. at just over 50 cents per pound, so in modern terms, the flour tax would have been daily worth about 180,000 U.S. dollars today, and 65 million dollars annually. In addition, Solomon collected 30 oxen and 100 sheep and goats every day. Those oxen would be worth about $100,000 a day. The worth of the sheep and goats is a bit tougher to calculate, but they would have probably amounted to about $30,000 a day. Altogether, according to the Bible, Solomon's annual income would have been about $113 million per annum, in addition to all the gold he was supposed to have earned and his 40,000 horses. Considering that Israel's population at the time would have been about a million, and GDP per capita in the ancient world was about $200 a year, I'd say this annual income might be a tad unrealistic. The state taxed about a tenth of production, so a figure of $20 million would probably be the highest plausible amount. With the land at peace and his treasury filled, Solomon was finally able to get started on the project he would come to be known for, the first temple of Jerusalem. Solomon traded with King Hiram of Tyre, whom we briefly mentioned last episode, for Lebanese cedar, the stable product of the Phoenicians. Interestingly, the Tanakh says that Solomon sent 30,000 corvée laborers to Lebanon to cut the wood, so it seems like Solomon was mainly trading for the rights to the wood, and still had to secure it himself. Most of the rest of the account of Solomon's reign is occupied with the construction of the temple, which we'll revisit next episode. It took him seven years to complete the temple, and then another 13 to build his royal palace, after which he fortified Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer, all of which we'll discuss soon. The Book of Kings actually has a strange sort of parenthetical about Gezer, mentioning that it was conquered by a pharaoh and given to Solomon as part of his daughter's dowry. A truly bizarre story. Solomon also received a visit from the Queen of Sheba, who grew into an important cultural figure long after Solomon's time. However, like every character in our story, Solomon slipped up at the end. You see, despite his wisdom, Solomon did not always think with his head. He disobeyed divine orders not to marry foreign women, taking for himself Egyptian, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Phoenician, and Hittite wives. Honestly, he was really only missing a Philistine, Aramean, and Assyrian to win episode 5 bingo. But that wasn't Solomon's only offense. Solomon built shrines to Milcom and Chemosh and sacrificed to them. Oops. However wise Solomon may have been, his reign would mark the end of the United Monarchy of Israel. Supposedly as divine retribution for his idolatry, the Edomites and the newfound kingdom of Aram Damascus rose up against Israel. Historically, the Edomites and the Arameans probably were not subjects of the kingdom of Israel, but increased contact could certainly have created strife. To make matters worse for Solomon, a prophecy was told that the house of David would lose the ten northern tribes of Israel 
to his new overseer of forced labor, an official named Yerobom, whose story we'll hear much more about in a couple of episodes. Solomon heard of this prophecy and tried to kill the man, but Yerobom was able to flee Egypt. He would not stay there for long. And finally, after 40 years on the throne and his once mighty kingdom in turmoil, Solomon died. Alas, if only the biblical story were true, except maybe the bits about murder and forced labor. But no, biblical archaeology is never that simple. As is always the case, there are two groups of scholars, those that generally accept the biblical account of Solomon's life, and those that don't. I mentioned back in episode 4 that the book of Samuel reads quite differently from the books of Judges and of Kings. Samuel tells the story of Saul and David, whereas the book of Kings reads more like a chronicle. Really, the book of Samuel is all about David. From the start of 1 Samuel through 1 Kings chapter 11, 67.5% of the material is devoted to the story of King David. By comparison, only 12.5% is used to tell Saul's story. Solomon is in between the two, with 20% of the text dedicated to him. But while Solomon's story is told in fewer words than is David's, his is filled with far more details. David was the progenitor of the Judahite dynasty and was immortalized as the founder of the eponymous House of David, from which many Jews believe the Messiah will one day hail. In the figures of Saul and David, we get the process of state formation, condensed into the actions of two individuals. Solomon was not the founder of a dynasty, nor of the state, but he is portrayed as the founder of its institutions, the administrative districts, the temple and the palace complexes, the trade networks, the elite chariot corps of the army, the justice system, and the taxation. Solomon is portrayed as a wise ruler and an essentially pragmatic one. We shouldn't forget his swift and cold actions to gain the throne in the first place. Yet ultimately, he succumbs to the same pitfalls of polytheism that will, according to the Deuteronomy historian at least, do many more kings of Israel and Judah. We know Solomon was a historical figure, but in many respects, the Solomon of the Book of Kings is also a literary one. The Deuteronomic historian was writing with an agenda. He had to prove that the House of David was the original legitimate dynasty and had once presided over a golden age that could be regained, if only its rulers were properly pious. The books of Samuel and Kings are a neat way to explain the origins of the states of Israel and how those states ended up becoming two separate kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Solomon plugs the gaps between the petty warlords of Saul and David and the developed kingdom of Israel that would come after the United Monarchy. Even if much of Solomon's story may seem plausible, we have to remember this agenda and take the Tanakh's account with a grain of salt. The biggest debate surrounding Solomon was about whether or not he even ruled all of Israel. Traditionally, it has been assumed that the broad strokes of the biblical account were accurate and that Israel split in two following the death of King Solomon. In the past few decades, however, this assumption has been heavily critiqued. Israel Finkelstein has been at the forefront of this debate, arguing that the southern kingdom of Judah, ruled by Solomon, developed later than did the northern kingdom of Israel. More conservative-leaning scholars see the amount of detail in the Book of Kings as indicative of its reliability, especially when it gives specific years for events and references early records that are now lost. Scholars like Finkelstein 
believe that these details could easily have been added to give a veneer of trustworthiness, while the wealth and power of Solomon's kingdom in the Tanakh simply isn't seen in the archaeological record. Central to the arguments of both sides are the cities of Gezer, Chazor, and Megiddo. These three cities are mentioned in the list of Solomon's building projects as having received new fortifications. So, of course, the best way to prove the accuracy of the biblical account would be to dig up these cities and find the fortified ramparts. If Solomon was the one to fortify these cities, then he certainly benefited from the labor of the Bronze Age Canaanites, since the three of them are among the oldest cities in Palestine and were all very important centers in the Bronze Age. We've mentioned Chazor and Megiddo before in episode one of the show. Megiddo was a strategically located city overlooking the rich Jezreel Valley, yet easily defended by the Mount Carmel range. In the late Bronze Age, it was the battleground for an early Canaanite rebellion against Egyptian rule, and would continue to be an important administrative center. Its importance would persist beyond the biblical period, and the Book of Revelations even claims that it will eventually be a battleground once more, this time for Armageddon, the Greek translation of Har Megiddo. And if one city in late Bronze Age Palestine could eclipse the importance of Megiddo, it would have been Chazor, the region's largest city at the time. This episode, however, will focus on Gezer. Located in the Shvila overlooking the coastal plain, Gezer was an old city, having been occupied since prehistoric times and having most recently been under Philistine control. By the time Solomon inherited it, supposedly from the king of Egypt as part of his wife's dowry, it not only boasted impressive Bronze Age fortifications, but was still a fully operational city. Gezer was rich in archaeological material from the 4th millennium BCE through to the Byzantine era, but, unfortunately, poor archaeological practices have ruined much of the city. The first excavations were conducted in the early 20th century by Robert Alexander Stuart McAllister, a man who had one too many names to be a careful archaeologist. Archaeology was still a young field in his day. Believing he had to race to finish excavations before his permit ran out, McAllister sought to, as he put it, quote, turn over the whole mound, end quote. In his haste, McAllister ignored stratigraphy and measurements, two vital tools archaeologists use to date finds, rendering much of the material discovered useless to researchers. Among these finds, one of the few that can be solidly dated was the Gezer calendar that we quoted at the start of the episode. The calendar, written in Proto-Canaanite, was clearly identifiable as a 10th century artifact because of the cultural and linguistic moment of its creation. It also seems to end with the name Abiyah, making it the first extant name that includes Yah, a shortened form of the Israelite god's name, yod Luckily, however, most of the city's architecture survived McAllister's excavations. The city was thin, around 600 meters long, but only measuring about 200 meters at its widest point. The city was well equipped to survive the dry climate of the Shvila, with a stepped Canaanite tunnel leading down to a freshwater spring. It also has a Canaanite mortuary shrine, consisting of 10 massive standing stones. In the Middle Bronze Age, early 2nd millennium BCE, the city would have been slightly smaller, but a new wall was built in the Late Bronze Age to enclose a larger area, forming a ring of two walls. Casemate walls, as these double-walled structures are known, 
provided excellent protection against attackers, as defenders could get around the city quickly by running inside the walls. Importantly for our story, however, is the gate that was later added to these walls. Though they were initially dismissed by Macalester as a fortification from the Hasmonean period, the time of the Maccabees, in 1957, Yigael Yadin noticed that it looked remarkably similar to a gate he had excavated at Khazor. Yadin himself was an incredibly impressive man, having led careers as a general, an archaeologist, and as a politician, including a four-year stint as Israel's deputy prime minister, before dying at the age of 67. Yadin had a hand in most major archaeological excavations and projects of ancient Israel. He excavated Matsada and worked on translating the Dead Sea Scrolls. His best-known work, however, was his identification of so-called Solomonic Gates at Gezer, Chazor, and Megiddo. Each of these gates had a stone foundation about five feet tall, marking out six rooms, three on each side. In antiquity, a brick structure would have risen above the stone base to create an impressive building that would have regulated passage in and out of the city and provided defense against assaults. The gates of Gezer, Chazor, and Megiddo are also remarkably similar to each other and appear to have been built around the 10th century BCE. To Yadin, there could have been only one way to explain these similarities. The gates must all have been built by King Solomon himself. Indeed, there are many reasons to believe this theory. Following Solomon's reign, Gezer would become part of the kingdom of Judah, while Chazor and Megiddo were in the northern kingdom of Israel. The only time when all three could have been built by the same king would have been during the time of Solomon, when all of Israel was supposedly united in a single kingdom. Of course, these cities were also mentioned in the Book of Kings as having been fortified by Solomon, lending even more credence to a Solomonic date of construction. That being said, the accuracy of the biblical text can never be taken for granted, as later generations could have seen similar gates and attributed them all to Israel's famous third king. In recent decades, however, archaeologists including Israel Finkelstein and David Usishkin have proposed later dates for the construction of the Three Gates. We'll soon discuss Pharaoh Shishak's invasion of Israel, but for now what is important to know is that Israel would soon be devastated around the year 925 BCE. Megiddo, which was more developed and was excavated better than a Gezer, became the center of the debate. Multiple gates and walls were layered atop one another at Megiddo, and a pair of palaces added to the mix of the archaeological remains. These structures, whose stratigraphy and thus dating are intricately woven together, have baffled archaeologists for decades. It was originally assumed that Megiddo's gates, walls, and palaces all dated to the reign of King Solomon, while stables were added about a century later. The two strata discovered here were separated by a destruction layer, traditionally dated to Shishak's invasion around 925 BCE. This dating was originally disputed in 1978 by Yohanan Aharoni. He accepted Yadin's arguments that the gates were all built by Solomon, but concluded that the walls and the gate had to come after the palaces and early monarchic structures. His solution, therefore, was to backdate the palaces to the reign of King David, for which we have no evidence of construction. Shortly afterwards, David Ushishkin of Tel Aviv University, who has since excavated Megiddo and has become a leading figure in the debates over the dating of the gates, revised Aharoni's theory. Ushishkin 
agreed with the logic of Aharoni's stratigraphy, but scrapped the assumption that the gates must have been Solomonic. Architectural elements from the palaces are similar to those found at Samaria in the 8th century BCE. He therefore shifted the construction of Megiddo's gate forward by about a century and a half. According to Ushishkin, the entirety of Israelite Megiddo dated the period after Shishak's raid, and the destruction found between the two phases of construction at Megiddo would have actually been caused by King Hazael of Aram Damascus at the end of the 9th century BCE. This, in fact, among a few other factors, has led Israel Finkelstein to propose the highly controversial low chronology in which he claims that the kingdoms were in fact never united and that all remains at Megiddo should be attributed solely to the northern kingdom of Israel, which began developing in the 9th century BCE. Though Finkelstein's theory certainly has its merits, it is not held widely enough by scholars yet to use as the basis for this podcast's chronology. But you should know that it is quite possible that the traditional dates I've been generally using are off by a considerable margin. We'll thankfully soon be out of the murky waters and on more firm ground chronologically speaking. Returning to the divisive gates, the Solomonic dating for the gates and the 8th century dating for the construction of the palaces are unfortunately both compelling, yet mutually exclusive. On the one hand, the similarities between the gates at Gezer, Chazor, and Megiddo are evident, and Gezer's location in the kingdom of Judah would suggest that the three would have had to have been built together at a time when Israel was unified in one kingdom. On the other hand, Aharoni's dating of monumental remains at Megiddo to the time of King David, in order to accommodate the later construction of the gate, is, quite frankly, impossible, and the similarities between the buildings at Megiddo and the 8th century BCE remains from Samaria cannot be ignored. Radiocarbon dating studies have been carried out on organic remains from the strata in question, but the results are unfortunately inconclusive, often with each side of the debate claiming to have been proven right. So, on that cheerful note, we will leave off for this week. But, dear listener, we are not quite finished with King Solomon. You may have noticed that I just skipped over a large chunk of the account of Solomon's reign that dealt with the first temple. That's because, in two weeks' time, we'll circle back to the city of Jerusalem and Solomon's most lasting impact on Judaism. Though we spent some time back in episode 3 discussing Israelite religious practices of the Iron Age 1 period, It's also time that we looked at the organized religion of the Kingdom of Israel. We'll meet the Kohanim and the lineage of Tzadok, who will hold the office of High Priest for centuries to come. Until then, you can find us at the website, for which, alas, I have finally run out of adjectives. The website, of course, is historyofthejewishpeople.wordpress.com, and the email for the show, if you'd like to reach out directly, is historyofthejewishpeople at gmail.com. If you can, Please also follow us on Instagram, at History of the Jewish People, where I post a little extra thing about one archaeological discovery related to the Fortnite's episode. This week the post is, naturally, on the so-called Solomonic Gates of Gezer, Chazor, and Megiddo. If you haven't already, please also give us a rating or a review. They help other listeners find the show, and they let me know how you think I'm doing. As always, music for the show was written and produced by Jacob Shaw. And finally, Shana Tova Umetuka. Have a great start of 5784, and I hope you tune in next year for episode 7 The Builder, part 2.